The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Dr. Klaus Heinemann joins the program today to discuss his life and work as a scientist, physicist, and author. Since emigrating to the United States from Germany in the post-war years, he has become distinguished for dedication in the area of science and physics. He talks today of the life-changing events through the study of orbs and his book, The Orbs Project. My guest today is a distinguished scientist and physicist. After receiving a doctorate in applied physics in post-war Germany, he emigrated to the United States to establish a successful and well-respected career working for the United States government and private sector. His profound theories and research have been highly recognized across the scientific community and beyond. He is author of over 60 peer-reviewed scientific papers and three books of which his fascinating research into orbs have captured the imagination of people throughout the world. His latest book, The Orbs Project, co-authored with Dr. Ledwith, follows years of deep research and explores communication with orbs, defining precisely what their existence means to our lives. Dr. Heinemann is quoted from his biography, The implications of a realization that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses are enormous and incredibly hopeful for the world at large. He joins me today from his home in Northern California. Dr. Heinemann, welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with me. It's a great honor to have you on the program. It's a great honor for me to be on your program. I'm terribly interested, uh, having been introduced to you by Dr. Susie Anthony in Great Britain, who elaborated and discussed your work with the Orb Project. And I would like to return, if I may, first before we look at that, uh, looking at your childhood, uh, looking at your younger years to really chart the evolution of your life and career for the listeners. I realize that you came from Germany. Would you like to give me some brief memories of that time leading up to your entry into the university world? Yeah, sure. How many hours do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, just kidding. Well, it's, it was a time was a very special time. I think it was characterized by realism. Things were not as easy as they are now. They, uh, they were more difficult. Resources were scarce, and um, you know, we had to get by with what was available. And, but interesting for me was always that that never had any impact on me as far as happiness is concerned, or joy, or anything of that sort. It also did not have any impact on, on anybody else in my mind in terms of what they would really learn, what people would learn, what people would experience. In fact, it seems to me from that experience, and that really has stuck with me, that lack of resources or lack of money did not go hand in hand with lack of 
uh, ingenuity. Almost just the opposite was true. In that post-war era, was that a difficult time in Germany? Did you have any difficulties immediately after the war in, in terms of uh, looking towards education, uh, in terms of expanding your, your knowledge base? I was, I was actually born in 1941, so uh, right in the middle of the war. My memories really start uh, at the time after the war. And my personal family was actually quite well off. Now, I do remember that my father did not come home from war or from, from prisoner of war camp um, until 1947, when I was six years old. And that was probably the, the starkest memory that I, until that time, I really did not have a father. But my family was basically happy, and we did have enough to, uh, uh, enough of what we needed. What was it that you saw about life then that made you look at physics? at science. Was there any catalytic event that took you down that road? I would say the catalytic event that catalyzed this uh, was more the, the, the very deep desire not to ever again get involved with anything that had to do with war. And in my mind, as a student, what had to do with war was obviously to be drafted into the just emerging German, new German army. In 19, that was in 1961. And so when I got out of school, I had um, really a lot of choices. And my, my real desire at that time was to study medicine, to go to med school. But I decided not to do that really for only one reason, and that is that if I was going to study physics, which was my next choice, I could immatriculate or um, sign, sign up with a university right um, the day after I finished school. And then I would be a student, and then I would be deferred from the draft. And that's the reason why I did that. Going to med school would have meant um, working as a working for half a year in some kind of a internship before I could uh, go to university. Now, your first experience in university life was the University of Munch and that studying physics. You clearly traveled through that well with expediency. And what was it then uh, that took you to continue your education at the next university at postgraduate level in applied physics? Again, it was uh, an opportunity that I had to to study um, to to be accepted into the um, Institute of Applied Physics at Tübingen, where which specialized in a very interesting field that had a lot to do with electron microscopy. And at that time, I didn't know at all what that was electron microscopy. I mean, I, I just had heard about it. But as soon as I got into it, I really got entranced with it and, and really um, became quite proficient very quickly. 
Now, at this stage, uh, was it becoming clear to you that you would be moving to the United States, uh, or was there some sort of involvement at that stage with officials from this country who who wanted uh, your expertise? Well, the way that worked was through interns or through uh, postdocs who visited Germany, the, the University of Tübingen at the time, uh, from this country, from the United States. And there was one relationship that, that I had developed with a professor from Berkeley who then invited me after I had uh, finished uh, with my studies and my Ph.D. degree, uh, who invited me to come to the uh, United States and, and work here for, for a year. I uh, gladly accepted that offer and then ended up working uh, on, a, on a postdoc arrangement at NASA, NASA Ames in Moffett Field, California. And that's essentially where I stayed. One year turned into an indefinite time period. So you were then offered clearly U.S. citizenship. Um, well, when you work for NASA, um, it is kind of presumed that you do become a U.S. citizen as soon as possible. And so, <clears throat> obviously, I, I came with an immigration visa, but as soon as the five-year waiting period was over, my first uh, action literally was to go to uh, register for uh, citizenship, and I became a citizen within a few weeks after that. What were those feelings that you may have had in those years following university, given the aftermath of the war? Did you miss Germany once you left it or, or really begin to evolve your thinking process to understand war in a better way? How were those feelings uh, coming to you? War is something that, that is, you know, if there's one thing that I was very clear about, it is <clears throat> that war is not, is, is, has become obsolete as a means of resolving conflict. If I remember, if I looked at, when I, when I remember that, you know, the, when, when family members didn't come back from war or, or I never met them because they, they had uh, died as soldiers, or um, when I looked at the, uh, the tremendous uh, devastation in terms of infrastructure that war had inflicted on, on, on our country then, um, I just, I just uh, knew that this cannot be the, the means to resolve conflicts, regardless of what the conflicts are. There must be some better way. So that was my, my premise. But the question goes actually beyond what was my feeling. Um, when I finished university in Tübingen, I, my first uh, employment was with a big company, Siemens, in Berlin, where I was uh, uh, developing the, the uh, high working on the development of the high-resolution microscope that they, at that time, were, were building. And uh, Berlin at the time was, a, was an island, and no matter what I did, within a few minutes, maybe within 20 minutes of driving, I was at a border. And that was it. And so coming to the United States literally was a was an awesome feeling that we that I could move around freely and wherever I wanted to go I could go. 
And uh, so my wife and I and our two kids would literally go go away every weekend. We would uh, somewhere camping or, or somewhere just enjoying the possibility of getting away. What about your time at Stanford University as a professor of research and materials science? Um, how, what was uh, your feelings about Stanford as an institution? It is definitely a top-notch university. There is no question about it. Um, I also felt that it is very competitive, and I think that has never changed. And uh, I, in a, in a way, later uh, realized that it is an institution like all the other excellent uh, institutions of higher education are, is entrenched in what I would call third-dimensional thinking. It doesn't leave much room for anything that is out of the ordinary, that is out of, that is that is really new in terms of of uh, exploring what life is all about. It has made the spiritual reality much more real, much more real than ever before. I was always aware that it, that that exists, that this spiritual reality is an extension of the physical reality that we are uh, that we have. But now, we actually have an evidence of it. And that is a big thing. We're not alone. Do you think uh, back in those early days that you would ever have thought that now at this stage you would have discovered uh, something so profound as the, the orb uh, paradigm? No, I really did not. Uh, although it was always my dream to find a correlation, a connection between the, uh, the, the normal physics or life, life in the normal uh, aspects and uh, what I then would, would have termed the spiritual. So I always wanted to bridge that somehow, but that I would actually be able to find something that can bridge that in a very pragmatic way um, no, I did not think that that was possible. How do you how do you balance your mind between that traditional scientific methodology that you grew up with and and this spiritual phenomenon? Though, what are the battles? Uh, what are the internal stresses that you have uh, between those two completely, in some ways, opposing values? I, I suppose the first. The first part of the answer to that very interesting question is that I have really never lost my critical thinking. Um, I've always kept my feet uh, on solid ground. But um, when it comes to the limits of conventional physics, I was able and willing to open myself to new ideas. And these new ideas were always complementary to existing physics. They are not replacing it. And therefore, they are not really in conflict. So to this day, I do have great reservations about some very simplistic, quote, spiritual, unquote, practices that some, some people 
advance, or some people do. I, I just uh, can uh, just look at them and say, "Hey, uh, <laughs> this is this is not this is very difficult for me to believe." Although I don't flat out say this is impossible, I, but I have a hard time uh, connecting to it. I have to be at the limit of something before I can make the leap. But there cannot be any nonsense, any clear nonsense on clearly physical aspects along that way. The event, I think, that may have somewhat changed your direction, changed your life in the 70s was attending this seminar of the late Dr. Harry and Amelia Rathburn. Uh, what was it about these two individuals that caught your imagination? It was really their life. It was what they said. They just sounded right. It felt right. They taught deep spiritual concepts, and they taught it very practical. There was nothing to believe that didn't make sense. They demonstrated their spiritual teachings with their own lives or in their own lives. And there was a total congruence of message and messenger. Now, when they talked about giving 100%, being present 100%, and they lived that, and that's what intrigued me. The book Jesus as Teacher, citing Dr. Henry mm -hmm. Burton, Sharma's electrifying purpose. Would you like to elaborate on that for me? This is the beginning of what I think many other scholars then did in later years. He did this in the very early 1900s. And it was a crystallization of the teachings of Jesus from out of what was said about Jesus in the New Testament. So there is, there is a lot that we find in the New Testament that is about him and not really what he said. And so Sherman just simply discarded everything that he did not clearly justify or could not clearly justify as what Jesus said and just stuck with the importance of what Jesus did say. And that makes things very simple and very significant. I mean, what Jesus said is, for example, love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, mind, heart, and strength, and the neighbor is thyself. This is the basic teaching that Jesus, uh, that Jesus did all over. And that's, that's what this is all about. That's what his life was all about. How, how did that change your life? Did it change the direction of your life in any way at that stage that was noticeable? It did change. I think one teaching that came along with that was the teaching of uh, the teaching of resist not? Now it, it is it is known uh, that that there's uh, many people know the teaching resist not evil. In in uh, in Jesus saying actually one can go one step further and, and further and say resist not. That is something that stuck with me and that changed me. Resist not means there's only one way for me to act, and that is to respond. And so I did that with all kinds of different, in all kinds of different ways. So you are, you are really moving into the area of moral and ethical 
At, at that point, I really was. And for example, I took a, a year off from working at NASA, from from doing science and, and surface physics and this kind of uh, thing, and did some something very practical when we had the 1970 whatever 75 energy crisis. And I, I took a year off, and I founded a company in which we would um, develop and then install. Uh, large uh, solar um, uh, heating systems on buildings. With that company that then later was was sold, um, we I don't know how many thousands and thousands of barrels of crude oil we were able to uh, not use by means of just using solar energy instead. We move on now to uh, your book, Expanding Perception. Uh, with emphasis on the quote, if I may, there is more to life than life. Uh, yes, I, I understand the quote, but no doubt that came from somewhere very deep within inside of you when you were writing this book. Yes. It always, uh, it, it has to do with the, the, the feeling that I had for a long time, actually since since I, you know, since way before I came to the United States, um, that there is more to the physical than what we can see. That, that there is just simply more than what we can touch and 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 see and hear and and smell and all of that and calculate even. There there must be something behind all of that, and that reflects on our lives. Uh, as, as, as a whole. So when I use the statement, um, there is more to life than life, the first life I capitalize. So I'd say it's, that's the real life. There is more to this real life than the, this short window of time that we experience in this present physical form. Now, is there any correlation in theological circles between possibly God's world and this material world that we live in? There is, um, it's, it's all one and the same. There is, not, there is not two different kinds of worlds. The world that we are living in is an extension is, uh, of, of what I consider uh, the world of God or the world of, of infinite wisdom or however you call this. It is just a very small part of it. Even if we look at this world that we exist in as the entire universe, which is huge, which is huge, nevertheless, it is only, this entire huge universe is only a small fraction, a small part of everything there is. This acts as a wonderful uh, segue into the Orb project. This extraordinary book uh, that you wrote with Dr. Ledwith. Certain discoveries have been made that profoundly alter the ways in which we think about ourselves and the universe and our place in it. And just such a discovery today is the phenomenon of orbs. People all over the world have been capturing these objects which look like spheres in their pictures. Though the world undoubtedly needs compassion and love. We're fooling ourselves if we think we can have compassion and love 
without power. And by power, I do not mean power over others, but power over myself, so that I'm no longer at the mercy of my crippling emotions and limitations. There is much more to you and me, but we have hypnotized ourselves into believing that that is all that there is. That is the permanent message of the orb phenomenon. I'd like to know before we talk about in depth what the orbs are, what it was that brought you together with Dr. Ledwith to produce this book. That was actually very simple and 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 one of those things that you might call um, well just happening by chance coincidence. I had um, well, let's see, we we had. And my wife and I together had encountered the, the orbs, and I had written a manuscript on that because I felt very quickly that it was so important to, that I should um, somehow write this up as a book. And at the time, there was nothing really available about it. And so at one of uh, the scientific conferences, uh, actually the Conference on Science and Technology, uh, on Science and, and Consciousness, I met a person who owns a uh, publishing company, which is actually owned now by Simon & Schuster, a very big publishing house. And uh, I gave her the manuscript and, and said, well, call, call me if you... Uh, <laughs> anyway, so after, after about three months, she did call me back. And she said, well, I, have, I also got another manuscript. It's also on orbs. It is written by someone uh, very different from you, he, coming from a different field. He's a theologian. I had not heard of Mihal before. And um, it is dealing with an aspect the way I, I uh, Cynthia Black, can read it that is quite different from the way you deal with it, you, Klaus, deal with it. And so uh, I said, well, that sounds interesting. Why don't we just... Um, get together and and uh, look at it. And then Michal and I made the first contact by telephone, and we decided that we would try it. And what we decided is that each of us would read uh, the other person's um, uh, manuscript, and we would then not uh, in any way uh, edit it but leave it totally up to the individual author what was presented there and present these two manuscripts as two parts of one book. And we agreed that we would write a common introduction and a common conclusion. And that's how the ORP project came about. This began, I realized, with these extraordinary photographs um taken almost accidentally at this conference in 2004. Uh, my goodness me, your initial reactions, you clearly understand uh, the, the photographic image, the capabilities of, of optics. Mm -hmm. um, when you first looked at these images, was it incredulous? Uh, did you question this? I suppose what I'm asking is, what was it that made you go back and take more? It's <laughs> what was it? It was the fact that I saw something that was totally extraordinary. We we were we had been invited to take photos at a 
spiritually oriented conference. And uh, so we had the privilege, in a way, to photograph whatever we wanted to photograph. And in when I downloaded the, the photos into our computer, um, all of a sudden I noticed there was something in that photo that made no sense to me. And that's when that thing began. I had never seen an orb before. I had never heard of an orb. I, I didn't know what that was. I didn't, I didn't have any clue whatsoever. But there were several pictures in that series that we took that afternoon in that session that had these phenomena. And so the first thing, of course, is go down and into the room again and see is there anything that, that could explain it. Of course, reflections and all of this stuff uh, come to mind immediately. I, I looked at and when I found in this first round of examining what we had seen that there is no real explanation, I became very intrigued. And then from then on, I think we we did uh, I don't know, years of studies and thousands of pictures and all kinds of tests that we could think of and uh, came to some startling conclusions that ended up in the Orb Project. And then in the later book that is just coming out this, this August, uh, so uh, Orbs, their mission and their, their uh, messages of hope. So uh, that, that, anyway, so this, this is how it all came about. You began to examine the Orb pictures and you found these multicolored spheres and this is what's so interesting to me you refer to them as resembling computer circuit boards where you were saying that each interior was unique um, th there are some astounding uh, theories that come to mind here uh, to me could you elaborate on that yeah um, what we found out first is that there is a unique interior structure to every one of these orbs that, that we had seen. Now, I must say uh, that a lot is intermingled now with hindsight, with, with knowledge that we gained uh, afterwards. Um, and one of them is that there are great varieties of orbs. And when I'm uh, continuing to talk about uh, this question here, I'm referring to orbs that I now characterize as coming from very highly evolved um, beings that are outside of our reality. So given that, there are, there are what I call interiorities. Uh, there are different structures inside that some people whom I had kind of talked about and shown the orbs and, and all of that, whom, whom we, we just simply talked about, who had the ability to actually see something in there that was beyond what we could see. And they said, oh, I see this and I see that in it. And uh, I just have to say, yeah, okay. Um, and that's very interesting, very nice. Now, later, we found out that... Uh, of course, the, the, the hypothesis was that, and as you know, that orbs are emanations from spirit beings. And we can talk about this some more, but given this hypothesis, um, the, they are 
highly conscious. The, these spirit beings are beings that are probably of a, of a degree of consciousness that, that is much higher than ours, than yours and mine. And so given all this, it is now my hypothesis that they are so conscious and they have at their avail the possibility of appearing to people in such a way as people um, want to see them or as people are most prone to see them. So people who are, um, let's say, engineer types and who work with the printed circuit boards, they would see them kind of resembling printed circuit boards. So in, in, in other words, they, and sorry to interrupt, but in, yeah. in other words, they are adapting themselves to the makeup of the human being that they, exactly. that they are in front of. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, uh, since I was never programmed to see faces in orbs, because that's just not the way I see them. And uh, I would, I would as, for a long time, I said, this is ridiculous. You can't see a face in orbs. And, and uh, this, this would make no sense to me. That's why they didn't show themselves to me with those features. That was until about a year ago when we were at a conference, we're actually talking at a conference on orbs in Germany. And um, after the conference was over, we had a kind of an, uh, an orb uh, project where people would go out with their cameras and, and photograph orbs. And there, all of a sudden, I saw an orb, two orbs in, a, in side by side, one of them had such a clear face that it was no longer a, a matter for me of, of saying, hey, uh, I doubt that it is a face. At that point, I could only say, who is it? Who showed himself or herself to me in that, actually himself in, in that picture? So it, that changed my way of looking at it, and that started my thinking that, in fact, these orbs are so conscious that they show themselves uh, in, in a way that they can be seen best and received best by whoever looks at them. Now, at the last minutes of this program, I'd like to ask you, how is this changing you now as a human being, you a profound uh, scientist and physicist, basing everything that, that you value on evidence? Uh, on, on needing evidence in front of you to, to, to evaluate and, and to draw conclusions. And, and here we are, you're now looking at orbs, you're seeing a, another dimension with huge depth uh, yeah. and, 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 and huge uh, collaborative evidence behind that. How is that affecting your life personally? It is wonderful to me because it is the the literally the fulfillment of a dream um, I'm not saying that in in an enthusiastic way I'm saying that um, in, in in terms of uh, having been searching for evidence that there is something to a life beyond for decades uh, since my childhood, and, and now um, there is a, a degree of evidence that I never thought would ever be able to, to be seen by anybody. 
And that evidence is now available to literally every person. And this, this, is, this is a phenomenal thing. We do have a direct evidence, and I, I can get much more into that, uh, into that aspect. We have, an, uh, with our own technology, we have created the field for such an evidence to, to, um, to be presented to us. I think for the first time, really, uh, there is a way of communicating between these dimensions, between being of these dimensions. Uh, this, what I would call the spiritual dimension, or this this other dimension, and ours, and uh, this 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 communication is now possible, and it's not possible only to a few or between a few gifted uh, people. Uh, it is it is possible for anybody who wants to see it and who picks up a camera and, and looks at it. And how has this affected the way that you approach? conventional scientific methodology? Only to the point that I am a lot more cautious when it comes to that part of physics and that part of physics experiments that is at the very fringes. And at the fringes, I mean literally at the end of, of uh, what, 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 what we can uh, do. Um, at the at, at the speed of light, at, uh, limited by the speed of light, for example, at uh, the smallest of small particles, literally at, at, at those fringes. Um, when it comes to normal physics, when it comes to engineering type physics, even even printed circuit boards, any anything like that, it there really is no no change in my thinking. It is a very straightforward. Uh, discipline, and you have to uh, apply the, the uh, normal civ- uh, scientific principle, and you get the results the normal way. But if you are dealing with these fringe phenomena, it may be very different. How about and, the, how, and, how how about those around you? Though you are obviously immersed in this and fully committed to not only this as a theory, but but also clearly very evident with the material that you have. But how do others, both in the scientific community and outside of the scientific community, view uh, your work? There is obviously a a great disparity. Some people are ready for it, ready in terms of, of ready to entertain that there is more. And others are very rigid and and will have more difficulties um, entertaining this. And I don't have a problem with that anymore. I uh, I just simply, um, I mean, I I do have conversations with people who are doubters, but I do not um, spend all my uh, energy on 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 this this group of people. There are plenty of of highly educated physicists who are in full alignment with with these findings. And this is really what I'm concentrating on. In fact, I I would say that the most enlightened physicists whom I have met are um, very much in line with, with the thinking that I've become accustomed to. And they obviously see a change in in you and a change in terms of your enlightenment, I suppose, oh. by these by these findings. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I wouldn't uh, 
I would phrase it a little differently, <laughs> but but in a way, yes. I mean, the, the these people are enlightened. These people are, are for example, I'm, I mean, let me just mention one name, uh, Professor Tiller. He was actually a colleague of mine when I was uh, at Stanford. He was he was a senior professor at that time, uh, senior to me, and um, we never. We knew, I knew of him, that his interests were in the in this area, in this area of researching the the uh, paranormal in a way. Um, but we never talked about it. It was taboo, and it remained taboo until after he had retired, and I had uh, left Stanford to fund my own company. And so maybe ten or fifteen years later, we got back. And together, and we started to collaborate on this. It was very interesting. Dr. Klaus Heinemann, it has been a wonderful first program uh, in this two-program series. I believe that the next program will be looking more in-depth uh, at your studies around the orbs, uh, looking at the digital image uh, versus the, the uh, celluloid images, and determining exactly uh, what it is that you have here and where you'll be going in the future and uh, certainly be looking forward to our next program together. Yes, I look forward to that too. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. Thank you uh, for joining us today. If you need any information on this or any other program in the series, visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in the, this world, good morning, good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 